Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to the book of 2 Timothy, we're still in that book. We're getting close to the end of it uh, soon here. And our sermon passage this morning is 2 Timothy 3, and we're going to read verses 14 through 17. So if you are able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17, give ear to the word of God. Paul says to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete Equipped for every good work. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Amen. Let's uh, let's pray and ask his blessing upon his word to us today. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as Paul even writes in this passage that all scripture is breathed out by you. And it is useful or profitable for all these things uh, for which you give it to us that we might be equipped for every good work. And, and uh, complete and mature in Christ in such a way that we can live for you in a way that pleases you and glorifies you. And Lord, we ask once again, as we know on our own, uh, we can study these things till we're blue in the face and never really come to understand them rightly. So we ask once again that you might be pleased in your kindness and mercy to us in Christ to fill us with your Holy Spirit, to teach us your word, to apply it to our hearts, to work in us what's pleasing in your sight that we might will And do uh, according to your will. Make us doers of your word and not hearers, only deceiving ourselves. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, um, I have to admit, every once in a while when you're preaching through a particular book of scripture, um, there are a number of passages uh, that kind of stick out. And this is one of the, for me personally, this is one of those kind of uh, highlight passages that literally highlighted my Bible most of the time. And uh, that is because, at least for me, early on in my uh, being discipled and taught um, the scriptures, uh, I was in part of a little discipleship group with my former pastor, and he would have us, he kind of took us through a a systematic theology course of sorts, uh, which was very far over my head at the time, but he would have us memorize a passage every time we met. So we'd, we'd work on that and memorize it. And one of the first ones I remember him having us memorize, and didn't know why at the time, but now I do, was 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Um, it's not too much to say that this is one of the most important and foundational texts in all of Scripture. And maybe you're wondering, why would I say something like that? Why, why is this passage, I mean, all Scripture, even as our text says, is God-breathed, it's all God's Word. But I think some of them just have a foundational Importance, And I don't think it's hyperbole or exaggeration to say that because what our text this morning does, among other things, is it sets before us and teaches us the right view of the Bible. And the right view of the Bible is that it is, it is the word of God. It is breathed out by God himself. Um, and it's not an overstatement to say that your, your understanding of, of the Bible, your view of Scripture... It's going to, to, in a lot of ways, it's going to determine everything about your faith and your life. 
it determines and changes and, and transforms everything else about your faith and life. How you view the Bible affects everything in your life, for good or for bad. If you have a low view of Scripture, if you don't believe it's the Word of God, if you believe it's just a human book, a human collection of books written by men uh, that is not the inspired, inerrant, authoritative Word of God, it is going to change how you live for the worse. If you understand the Bible to be the Word of God, it should change everything else about your life. And so, Lord willing, uh, my plan, we'll see if it's God's plan, is to take more than one Sunday going through this passage. I think there's too much for us to rush uh, through it, and we don't want to disrespect the verses you know, before it as well. So we're going to deal with this in part today and in part probably in the next Sunday or two uh, to come. I think it's for our benefit often to slow down, uh, to do justice if possible to the passage uh, and take a little bit more time looking through it. So let's look at our passage, at least a beginning of it. And the first thing that Paul brings our attention to in this text is his uh, instruction and exhortation to Timothy as well as to us today. It applies to us today as well in many ways. And his exhortation to Timothy and to us is to continue in the truth, to continue on or persevere in the truth. Look at verse, four, verse 14 again. He says, uh, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. So if you remember, if you were here last Sunday, I apologize. I'll try to catch up to speed if you weren't. I know many of us weren't here this last Sunday. But uh, we looked at verses 10 through 13, the previous passage last Sunday. And there what Paul does is he contrasts himself uh, with the false teachers who were seeking to gain a foothold in the church. Uh, they, they, the false teachers, they were frauds, pretenders, deceivers. Verse 5, before that, he, he describes them ha as having the appearance of godliness. In other words, seeming to be godly men, uh, but they had the appearance, but not its reality and not its power. They were not, in fact, godly Christian men. They just gave the outward impression of it. And in fact, in verse 13, previous to our text this morning, Paul tells Timothy that such men as that will grow worse and worse and worse. And he says, deceiving and being deceived. So they're not only deceiving others, they're themselves also being deceived, either by themselves or even by the evil one. But what Paul does here is he, he says that's not the way Paul was. Paul contrasts himself with those men in, uh, in many ways. And in verses 10 to 11, he reminds Timothy of that. He reminds Timothy of his own way of life, his own faith, his own love, all these things, his own perseverance in ministry. He reminds him of the purity and constancy of of his own doctrine and life. He reminds him as well as of the price that Paul was repeatedly willing to pay uh, for his ministry of the gospel and for godliness. Timothy knew full well that in one city after another, Paul was violently treated to persecution by the hands of wicked men. And all of that was for the sake of of the name and the glory of Christ. You can think of Paul, if you knew Paul as Timothy did, you knew of all the things you could think of, certainly Paul's motive was not selfish gain. You don't go from one place to the other, taking one beating after the next, one shipwreck after the next, one imprisonment after the next, if you're out for money. 
if you're out for selfish gain, if you're out for personal privilege and those kinds of things. Now, in our text this morning, Paul not only contrasts himself with the false teachers and deceivers, he contrasts Timothy as well with those same false teachers, and he does so in some ways by way of exhortation. This exhortation to continue in the truth. He's calling Timothy to the same kind of constancy in faith and life as he himself demonstrated before him and as he taught him. So just as he had, in verse 10 it says, Paul says, You have closely followed my way of life and my teaching. Even so now he exhorts him and and encourages him to continue on in that same thing. Verse 14 again, he says, Continue or abide in what you have learned and firmly believed. You've made a good start, keep going, is basically what he is telling him to do now. Timothy, as all of us are as well, is, was to seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter says that in 2 Peter 3.18. We often use that as a benediction some Sundays. Uh, Timothy was to seek to make progress in both his knowledge of the, the Word of God as well as his ministry of the Word of God. You might recall back in 1 Timothy 4.15, he tells Timothy, it's a, it's a very strong way of saying it, he tells him to immerse himself in these things. Like, don't do it by half measure. Throw yourself into, bury yourself in your work. Immerse himself in the ministry. And he says in that verse, so that all may see his progress. That's the kind of ministry of Timothy was called to do and every pastor is called to today. Likewise, he tells him, uh, we think of this as the Awanas verse. If you've ever been involved in Awanas, 2 Timothy 2.15, couple, or one chapter ago from our passage, he tells him to do his best to do what? To present himself as one approved to God. And then he adds, rightly handling or dividing the word of truth. So these are things he's constantly exhorting Timothy to do. But growing in grace and knowledge and progressing in ministry and handling of the truth involves abiding in the truth and growing further and further into it, not growing past it or moving on from it. It's not a matter of, well, you've learned the basics. Now here's this other thing. You've done all that. That's fine. Now let's move on to other things, uh, other more important or new things. There is, I believe, a constant temptation for every Christian and even for those who are called to the ministry of the gospel and that temptation, one of them anyway, is that uh, to follow after the latest novelty, to follow after and chase after the next big thing, the new shiny object, so to speak, that suddenly grabs everybody's attention. Um, You know, there's always a temptation, you could say it's a pragmatic one, uh, to kind of look around and see what other people, other churches and ministries are doing that quote-unquote works. And, oh, I better change everything we're doing and follow after whatever the crowds are following after. And I'll say, such things seldom ever end well. They seldom ever last long, frankly. There's always the very next thing after that, the shiny new thing after a little while. It's no longer the shiny new thing and somebody else thinks of something else rather than the simplicity of the truth of God. Have you ever known somebody, even a fellow professing believer, who is constantly going from one thing to the next, sort of bouncing from one thing to another, even when it comes to doctrine 
and theology. I have known such men, and maybe you have known such people as well. That's, that isn't growth in grace. That is instability and immaturity. Have you ever had that as kind of a, a stage or a phase in your own life where you found yourself kind of going bouncing from one thing to the next, from one teaching or one novelty to the next, even with regard to what God's word teaches? You know, imagine the confusion among the flock of God in the church being led by someone like that. Always going from one thing to the next, always kind of going wherever the way the wind happens to blow. Think of how confusing that must be. And so Paul reminds and exhorts Timothy and us to continue in the things, the truth that he had learned and firmly believed. He must continue to firmly hold to and believe the truth, even as he had been taught it by Paul and by others. That's why Paul tells him back in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he says, I mean, you see, this is something he brings up again and again throughout these two letters. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. That good deposit was the truth. That good deposit was even the pattern of sound words. And that may sound like a strange thing, but I think even that particular verse is, is the basis for what we think of as, as catechisms and catechizing our children, our church members, to learn a pattern of sound words that is true to the doctrine that the scripture teaches. It is a good deposit. And a good deposit is something that must be held to and guarded. In other words, a deposit isn't something that's yours. It's something entrusted to your care and to your use. And so the truth, the good deposit, is not ours uh, to, to deal with or dispense with uh, however we please. It belongs to, to God himself. It's his truth, not our own, to tweak or change or any such thing. And so um, that, is, that is it. The way that we learn the truth matters. The way that we articulate the truth matters. Very often, false teaching creeps into the church by by kind of subtle changes to how we articulate things and changing the wording of things. And again, the, the truth of God is a good deposit that we have been given. Second John 9, I think we read this last week as well, but I think it bears repeating. Second John verse 9, it says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. It matters what we believe, right? Does not have God. And then he says, Whoever abides in the teaching or the doctrine has both the Father and the Son. Abiding in the doctrine of Christ matters very, very much. Now, the word abide there in that text, it's the same exact Greek word that Paul uses here in our text in verse 14 that the ESV renders continue. It's the same exact word, same exact idea. And then Jesus Christ says something very similar our Lord does in John chapter 8. Verses 31 and 32, Jesus says there, it says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, the believers, right? If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will do what? Set you free. Abiding in his word uh, is to be a real disciple. You know, reverse engineer that. What does it mean if you're not abiding in Christ's word? You're not really a disciple. What is a disciple? The word that's translated disciple in our New Testament 
has the idea of someone who is a learner of someone else and a follower of someone else. So if we're not abiding in his word, are we really following him? It's as if what Jesus says, remember he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Well, why do you call yourself a disciple if you're not learning and holding to my word, Jesus would say, and following after him? We don't really have the, the right to call ourselves such if we're not doing those things. So not only pastors and elders, but every believer in Christ must make it his or her aim. You must make it your aim to continue on in the truth and to abide in Christ's word. Is, is that your aim? Do you ever, do you, does that ever cross your mind? Do you ever think about that? That you need to abide in the teaching of Christ and, and hold firm to it? Are you seeking even now to abide in the truth of Christ's word and so truly be his disciples? I hope that you are. Uh, brothers and sisters, what Paul says to Timothy here, the scripture also says to you and I, continue on in what you have learned and firmly believe in the doctrine of Christ. Well, Paul not only exhorts us to continue on in the truth, he also gives us, kind of gives us reasons and motivations why we should do so in some ways in our text. And you could say, in essence, what he tells Timothy to do is not just continue in the truth, but consider the source. You ever hear that phrase before? It can be, it can be used for good or for bad, right? If, if somebody is unjustly critical of you, or they're always saying negative things about you, sometimes we, we tell ourselves, well, consider the source. This is the kind of person they are. They're always hypercritical or whatnot. But in a good sense, it can be used the same way. Consider the source, he's telling Timothy and us, of, of where and from whom we have learned this truth and learn to uh, firmly hold to it. Look at verse 14 again. He says, Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Think about where you heard these things the first time. And let that be a motivation and an incentive for you to hold firm in these things. And what was the first source that Timothy was to remember and consider? At least in our text, I believe it's Paul himself. I think this is the logical conclusion of what Paul says back in verses 10 and 11 when he tells him about his own faith and life, how Timothy had followed closely these things. Timothy knew full well the faith and life of Paul who had brought him to a knowledge of Christ in the gospel. He knew where and from whom he had learned that truth and that was to help him continue on, keeping on in the faith and continuing on in it. How many of you this morning that are sitting here, how many of you can look back upon your own conversion uh, to a, and think about a particular person that God used to bring you to a saving knowledge of Christ? It's the power of the gospel that saves. God, it's his power at work in the gospel, but God uses means. God uses instruments, and very often those are people, most of the time. Maybe all the time those are other people that God uses in his providence sovereignly to bring you to a saving knowledge of Christ. You know, perhaps in some cases, hopefully in many cases, it was a pastor or a preacher preaching the gospel to you that you heard maybe for the first time, maybe for a hundredth time. But finally, God used it to open your eyes to the truth of the gospel. Does that, does that describe your conversion to Christ? It described Timothy's. Timothy could look back on a day when he heard Paul preach the gospel and he finally believed. Was there a minister whom God used to bring you to a right understanding of your sin and your guilt, your need for the Savior and the good news of salvation through faith in Christ alone. 
If that's the case, do you think about that, that minister's faith and life, his constancy in life and in doctrine? Does, does the remembrance of those things spur you on to continue on in the truth and walking in that truth? You know, I can say, I haven't been a pastor quite that long, but I can say confidently that there's nothing that brings cheer and joy to the heart of a godly pastor than that. Third John verse 4 says this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth, not just holding to it, but walking in it, actually living in accordance with it. That is as true for spiritual parents as it is for natural parents. And certainly Paul felt that same way about Timothy when he thought of him. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, he says it really twice in both letters, he called Timothy his what? His true child in the faith. Paul was not married. Paul did not have a family. But he considered Timothy as if God had given him a son after all. His true child in the faith. In fact, verse 15, uh, verse 15 there, Paul reminds Timothy that it was even from his childhood that he had known the Holy Scripture. Maybe sometimes your conversion, your coming to Christ, God used a friend or a relative or even maybe your father and your mother, that God used them sovereignly to bring you to a saving knowledge of Christ. Uh, does their, does your mom and dad or whoever it was, does their constancy of faith and life encourage you also to continue on in the truth? If so, thank God for them. Again, Paul reminds Timothy that it was from his childhood that he had known the Holy Scriptures. In fact, that word childhood there in, in verse 15 it could be translated infancy. He's not saying, you know, from when you were a teenager on, you knew the scriptures. He's saying from when you were, what, knee high to a grasshopper, when you were little, from your youngest days, you knew and were taught the scriptures. What a blessing it is to grow up in a godly, believing home. What a gift of God's grace to grow up in a home that many of us have, where your parents are sincere, even if not perfect, Believers in Christ who pray for you and prayed with you, who read the Bible with you and seek to make you uh, know, even from your youngest days, the way of salvation through faith in Christ. Parents and grandparents this morning, never underestimate what God may do in the lives of your children and your grandchildren through the simple act of faithfully praying for them, praying with them, and just reading the Bible with them on a regular basis basis you don't have to be a bible scholar to do that the gospel is not that complicated it's deep and you know the bible is deep but it's also wide and it's it's simple enough in its essentials that even the smallest child can learn and understand the basic message of the bible so you know think about timothy had paul and that you know to us that would be impressive well he was taught the gospel by paul but paul doesn't just single out himself does he Paul mentions uh, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Timothy also had a believing mother and grandmother that God used in bringing him to a saving knowledge of Christ. 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul says to Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first where? In your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So Paul's not taking credit. Paul's not like, well, you know, it wasn't for me. 
Paul's saying, I taught you the gospel, and so did your mother and your grandmother. They were a part of what God used to bring him to a saving knowledge of Christ. How often it is that God, by his grace and mercy, thankfully, works in and through our families to bring our children and our grandchildren to a saving knowledge of Christ, even at a very young age. How good is God that he works through our families in so many ways and so many times? Thank God for it. Well, there's one more source that Timothy was to consider that Paul brings up here to encourage him to continue on in the truth, and that is the ultimate source of truth, that is the scriptures themselves. He was to to continue in the truth, he was to consider the source And of those sources, he was primarily to consider the scriptures themselves. Look at verse 15 again. He says, And from childhood, how you have been acquainted with the sacred writings or the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So Timothy, Timothy had known the scriptures from his youngest days because of his faithful family, multiple generations of that family, uh, so to speak, also. And, and just think about what Paul says about the scriptures in this passage. First and foremost, they are able, verse 15, able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've ever read that passage and thought, what a weird way to put it. Like, what does he mean by wise unto salvation? It, it does sound kind of odd to our ears, at least it does to mine. But I think when you think about who he's contrasting this with, with the false teachers, no doubt those false teachers had ways of, of twisting the scripture in many ways, and no doubt they thought themselves to be extremely wise in how they did it. But they were strangers to the truth. They didn't actually know Christ. They didn't even preach Christ. They were much like the unbelieving Jews uh, that Jesus dealt with in the Gospels. In John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40, Jesus says to these unbelieving Jews, it says, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And then he says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Like, it's, it sounds good at the start. I mean, they didn't just kind of read the Bible casually or haphazardly. He says, you search them. It, it's a way of saying you diligently study the scriptures. In this case, he's talking about the Old Testament. And notice he says the Old Testament testifies about whom? About Jesus himself. When you think about what Paul says about the, old, the scriptures to, to Timothy here, about they are able to make you wise to salvation, what scriptures was he referring to? The Old Testament, not just the New Testament. The Old Testament is the Bible that the, the apostles preached until they had finished writing the books of the New Testament. But Jesus says you search the scriptures, you you seek things out, you want to learn them, but it's as if they do it for sport or to prop up their own egos or something else. Whatever it was, it wasn't that they might come to Christ. In fact, they missed the entire point. Imagine searching the scriptures like that and missing the entire point. You can be a diligent student of the Bible. Many Christians aren't, sad to say. We should be diligent students of the Bible But you can be a diligent student of the Bible and never come to a true knowledge of the truth. And that's because the Bible, for all that it is, it's never intended to be an end in and of itself. We don't study the Bible just to study 
the Bible. What is the Bible meant to do? It testifies to Christ. It is meant to reveal Christ to us that we might have a right knowledge of God. It points us to the way of salvation through faith in him. There, there are many people, many religious people who have the scriptures, who have the Bible, and study them, but they do so in such a way that they never actually come to Christ for salvation. What a tragedy to live that way, to have the Bible be so close in some ways and yet not ever come to Christ. But Christ himself there says that the scriptures, the Bible, bears witness to him, and for what purpose? that we may come to him and have life. He says to those unbelieving Jews, it's a very strong way of putting it, it's not that they just didn't come. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. It's, it's like the Bible has got its arms wide open saying, come and live. Turn from your sins, believe on Christ and live. And they said, no. We'll just keep on studying and missing the point. What an awful thing to think about. Well, not just that, but look at verse 16 and 17, Paul says, and we're going to spend, Lord willing, another Sunday on this passage as well, but this part of the passage, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the Bible is, is able to make you wise unto salvation, and why is that? And what else do the scriptures do in your life? Well, first, Paul tells us something foundational to everything else in the Christian faith and life. He says the scriptures, basically what he's telling us here is the scriptures of the Old New Testament are the very words of God. They are the word of God himself. That's what he means when he says they are God breathed or breathed out by God. Now, Notice what Paul is and is not saying about the Bible. We have to be careful how we understand these, these terms, these words. He is not saying that God took a human book merely written by a collection of human authors and human writings and somehow breathed life into it. He's not saying the Bible is a human book with just a little bit of a divine spark in there where if you weed through here and there, there's things in it that God might use, but don't be too dogmatic about it. He's saying it's breathed out. The scriptures themselves are breathed out by God. They are ultimately his word and not ultimately the words of the human authors at all. They are Paul's words in one sense, but ultimately whose words are they? God's words. Even down to the words themselves. Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, he says he didn't come to get rid of the law. I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but he says, till heaven and earth pass away not one jot or tittle, to use the King James, or not one uh, dot or iota, I think it is in the ESV, will pass away until everything is fulfilled or accomplished. A jot or a tittle is the smallest mark of a pen and the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It looks like a comma, the, the, the jot or the yod. Like it's, it's that tiny. You could miss it if you blink. And he says, not even that will fail to come to pass and be fulfilled, but heaven and earth will pass away. In other words, what the scripture says, God says. And what God says, the scripture says. That's why Paul can say, maybe you've read this passage and never really thought about it, or maybe you have in Romans 9, 17 to 18, 
that section where Paul's talking about the doctrine of election that so many have difficulty with. But in verses in verse 17 of Romans 9, he says, for the scripture, the scripture says to Pharaoh, he doesn't say God said to Pharaoh. Now, when you read Exodus, what does it say? God said. Paul says the scripture says to Pharaoh for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, Paul's conclusion, he, that's God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. But don't miss the little detail there. The scripture says to Pharaoh what God said to Pharaoh. Who said those things? It was God, and yet there Paul equates what God said to the scripture speaking. How does it affect your view of the Bible? It should transform how you read and study the Bible. That's what it should do when you think about it rightly. To reject the scripture is to reject the word of God. God's word is our standard for faith and life. It is we who must confirm, conform our beliefs and lives to it and not vice versa. Too often we try to do it the other way around. Well, I think this way. And I, I'm living this other way. So the Bible, I have to find a way to make the Bible conform to me and my preferences. People do that all the time. They twist the scripture to suit their own lusts or their own thinking, which is not the right way to approach the, 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 anything in the Christian life and the Christian faith. In fact, if you know the shorter catechism, you might know question two. Everybody knows question one if you've been a Presbyterian long at all. I'm, I'm tempted to say it. I don't want to embarrass myself if anybody gets it wrong. But what's the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Question two, pretty important question we sometimes don't think about. What, is, what rule, standard, has God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? How do you know if, if the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever? How are we to know how to do that? The scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy God. The Bible teaches us how we may glorify and enjoy God. Question three, you might notice the first few questions deal with the scripture, right? The basics. What do the scriptures principally teach? What's their main message? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. What we are to believe and how we are to live. That's the main gist of, of the Bible. Now Paul in our text doesn't go into great detail about how God inspired the scriptures and how God breathed them out. Other parts of the Bible do go into that a little bit. He simply asserts the truth of it and applies it to Timothy. And how does he apply it to our lives? He tells us that, he tells us that because all scripture is breathed out by God, it is then what? Profitable or useful in many ways. And notice he says all scripture. Even the parts that you read and you go, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to get out of that. I'm not sure how to understand that quite yet. It's there for a reason, even if we're not sure why it's there. Know and be convinced that God put it there for your good. But what is the scripture profitable or useful for? He says it's useful first for teaching or doctrine for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Lord willing, we'll go into more detail about those uh, next Lord's Day. But for the time being, let's summarize what Paul is saying here 
by saying the following. All of scripture, even the parts, again, that we don't quite understand as well as we might like to, uh, are given to us to teach us what to believe and how to live. What to believe and how to live. And part of that means that at times the scriptures, if we're using them rightly, will have to correct us in what we believe. We don't just naturally on our own believe the truth and understand it and know all the right things. You don't just come to Christ by conversion and suddenly magically your entire brain and your entire thought life is utterly transformed and you never need to be taught again. I'd be out of a job, that's for sure, but you wouldn't even need the Bible, would you? That'd be it. You're, you're, you're automatically uh, good to go in all these things. Um, it also means that at times the Bible, as Paul says there, when he says reproof, the Bible sometimes will rebuke us, not just in what we think, but in how we live. Have you ever experienced that, either in listening to the preaching of the word on the Lord's Day or maybe in your own personal reading and study of Scripture? Ever read your Bible or listened to a sermon and been suddenly convicted of a sin and your need for repentance in a certain area of your life? Or maybe a shortcoming in the duties that God has called you to and led you uh, to reformation. You come across a passage and, well, that's not the way I've been living. I knew that, but I forgot about that. And by God's grace, I'm gonna, that's going to change. This is how God wants me to live. We're going to you know, pick ourselves back up, dust ourselves off, and ask God to sanctify us further. Have you ever had your beliefs challenged and corrected by the scriptures? I hope you have in many ways. The, the Bible has a funny way of, of doing that. And again, that's because the truth is not intuitive in all things to us. I won't go into detail. I've, I've told, I, have, I always joke I have five stories. One of them is my understanding, finally coming to an understanding of God's sovereign grace and election. I remember, I'll go into it a little bit. Uh, my, old, my old college pastor, the one that made me memorize all those stacks of Bible verses, um, he was teaching an election, and I had never heard of it before, and I was, oh, I don't know. I remember looking at my friend Todd and saying, when the pastor walked away from him, and I said, are we in a cult? Uh, should we leave? Well, while George is off in the kitchen, should we just bolt out the door and not come back, you know, run out screaming with our hair on fire? Um, no. But what, what my pastor at the time did was, didn't argue with me, didn't fight with me. I was, but, 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 but. And he said, no, no. Just go home and read Romans 9. Don't, I'm not going to argue with you. Just I can't convince you. This isn't a quote, but this part is, just go read Romans 9. Now, why did he say that? Because it teaches election. But why else did he say that? He knew at the time, I believe the Bible's the word of God already. He knew that if he could show me from the Bible, that I would swallow my pride eventually and go, I don't get it, but that's what it says. And that's exactly what happened. I wasn't sure how that fit with everything else, but I, was, I could, not, could not continue to say, no, the Bible doesn't teach that. I, I was humbled, and I said, oh, that's what it says. And suddenly, so many other parts of the Bible finally made sense that never made sense before. Why? Because God had corrected my thinking. And how did he do it? Not by being argued into it, by the scriptures. And I, I think in many other ways, in many other things, not just things like that, Hopefully you've had the same experience in many ways of the Bible correcting uh, your thinking as well as your life. Uh, but if we can be shown something by the scriptures, 
That should settle every question. For faith and for life. When push comes to shove, you and I who believe on Christ must stand firm upon the rock of God's inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word. Our own thoughts that we tend to like so much are really shifting sands. They're not reliable, whereas the word of God is the rock on which we should stand. Now, what else does Paul say about the profitability or usefulness of the scriptures? He says they make us complete, equipped for every good work. Now, when he says this is true for the man of God, maybe you've never thought about why why he puts it quite that way. I believe there he's really referring, first and foremost, to Timothy's role and job and work as a pastor. The, The man of God is a phrase you'll find in the Old Testament to refer to the prophets. Go get the man of God. You know, Elijah, go get the man of God, Isaiah, that kind of a thing. He's comparing Timothy in his role as a preacher and a, and a pastor to the Old Testament prophet who's, who said, Thus saith the Lord. So I think that's the main reason he puts it that way. Uh, and so a pastor must be a man of the book. Man of learning, but a man of, of the book. He must be, an elder must be formed and equipped by the word of God. In some ways, you could say, uh, the tools in his toolbox, the, ma- the main one has to be the scriptures. Above all else. But this is also no less true of every believer in Christ, including you. It's not just something for a pastor to do or an elder to do. It's also for every believer to be committed to. Do you want God to use you for his glory? Do you have a heart's desire that God might use you for the building up of his kingdom? I hope you do. I think, of course, if you're a believer, you do. Well, if, you're, if, you, if that's what you want, you must be a diligent student of God's word. And you must, as James say, be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. But we have to study God's word to correct and transform our faith and our life. And if we're not going to do that, we have no right to expect God to use us in these ways. We have no right to complain if we feel ill-equipped for life and godliness if we're going to neglect his word. God transforms us, to use Paul's words in Romans 12 too. How does God typically transform or change you as a believer? By the renewing of your mind. How does God renew your mind as a Christian? By his Holy Spirit working through his word in your life and mine. The Bible is life transforming. There's no other book in the world that does that. The Bible's living and active, right, Hebrews? No other book does that. In fact, that passage, I got the, pr- the privilege of teaching a short Bible lesson at the Iwana, one of the Iwana classes a few weeks ago, and we talked about that, that phrase in Hebrews. And it says that the Bible's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing between joints and marrow and all this stuff. And it says, judging and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. Think about what what the author of Hebrews is saying there. I told the kids, I'm like, the Bible's the only book in the world that when you read it, it reads you back. It it shows you you in some ways, which can sometimes be uncomfortable. But it it shows itself to be the word of God in many ways. That's just being through the word is how God transforms your life and mine. So may God give you and I understanding into these things. 
so that we might continue on in the truth even as Timothy was to do, knowing that we have been taught and established in the truth ultimately by the word of God itself. Amen.